0: Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Future Proofing Finance podcast on behalf of the CFA. As usual, it's me, Ben Ashby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tom. Hello, all. I'm always hoping to get a longer response from you when I introduce you. This might be the week to do it. I just feel like,
1: I just feel like it's the wrong time to put words in at the top of a uh of a thing. I always look at it like a funnel, you know, try and get more people to listen and then make them not drop away too fast. So I will, I'll indulge you. Um, uh, Hi, hi listeners. Um, We're joined here today by Rachel Curtis. Very excited to have her on today and hear about her journey to entrepreneur. Um, Having had a career a bit more familiar for many of the CFAs in the world of banking and finance, amongst other things. So welcome, Rachel.
2: Hi,
0: thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. Rachel, so we normally start off with a bit of a, your journey, and as Tom had already mentioned, you started off in traditional finance, like the rest of us, and and in my case, still stuck there. So explain how you moved from there into Anissio AI. And what does it do?
2: Yeah, I've realised I told somebody this story the other day and they thought I'd got a plan and I'd planned all this out. And let me just be clear, I absolutely hadn't. Um, I think what I had when I looked back was an approach of sort of curiosity and problem solving and sort of following those leads led to sort of many different roles. Um, And and, and the theme that then led to running a startup 30 years later. But um, my first job was actually on the counter of a Halifax building society. Um, I found customers really fascinating and I remember something really early on that was quite sort of um, set out my approach I suppose and that was that um, very in my first few weeks there was a huge easter egg on the side um, in the banking hall and apparently that was the prize for the cashier that got the most financial advisor leads Um, and let me just share with you I like chocolate Um, so I set out to smashed the target and beat everybody else by about three times for financial advisor leads. There were a lot of people seeing a financial advisor that probably didn't know why or what they wanted, but I, I won um, and then obviously went on and smashed the egg as well. But I think what that did was create a real connection for me that hard work pays off. And then that sort of followed through in everything else that I did. So a few years at the Halifax, then moved to Alliance in Leicester because I was based in Leicester. So there were a lot more opportunities. Um, And again, it was sort of curiosity that drove my moves through the different branches, sort of asking how things could be done better, ultimately up to a branch manager role, and then sitting in that job and getting things called branch instructions through from head office, and always wondering, well, why has somebody written it like that? That's not what customers do, that could be done better. So I figured the best answer was to go back and do that job. And then when I was in that job, you would get the products down from product marketing. And again, I'd be in the situation where wow, if you really understood customers, you design products this way. So I then went and did that job. Um, and it really, I, like, I spent most of my career there because that was about doing the customer research, build the product, brief the sales team, measure the performance and then refine it. So it was that being able to build something that I think was really um, hooked me into that kind of piece. Um, and then santander came in it was a kind of a really an abbey national takeover and the culture really changed for me and it wasn't right for me anymore so i um took my redundancy check and at that time the most popular tv program was sarah beanie's property ladder which only people of a certain age are going to get but i thought it was a good idea for me to go and buy a complete shed of a property and start developing that so i did that for a few years and then uh, an old colleague came along and said oh i'm going to launch a challenger bank and i was like oh, can you actually just do that and um so we decided as a team we could um and we launched a commercial bank and i was there for 10 years running so i built the liability side of the business led the customer experience and operations we probably still had an entrepreneurial approach there so we were the first bank that did um deposit broker platform savings um at the time everybody thought that was a really bad idea and everybody does it now so that was a good decision and it was my last role there where I did a digital transformation project um, met a couple of introduced me to a couple of people that introduced me to this new technology around conversational AI. Which sort of three, four years ago, nobody really knew what that was um, and it was that that I thought was super exciting that really kind of um, we came up with a good use case for it and it just really captured me in the guts and that's why I am now running a startup using that.
0: Thank you very much there's so many questions i could go uh, with there uh, can i just kick off a really basic one why do you think so many financial firms get it wrong about what customers really want
2: i think it's the detachment from the people that are making their decisions to the actual real life of real customers and there's been a lot more i think we're better at that as an industry now because people have realized that's how you can be sort of successful one of the things I did at Alliance in Leicester was I was part of, um, l- launched a scheme called the Marketing Academy where we, um, at that point, the people in marketing all had marketing degrees, that's what they'd done. And I was the first person that didn't have a marketing degree that had come through a customer-facing role, and it made a big difference. So we launched the Cup Co- Marketing Academy to bring in four people every year from customer-facing roles in the business. And during their time there, they got their marketing degree at night school, but they just brought in a different impact. And I think that's what led Alliance and Leicester with the number one in customer service. And I think it was things like that that really helped with having that focus. So can I ask,
0: you've mentioned that conversational AI. In the interest of full disclosure, as you know, I've been involved with some of my business partners helping um, find you financing for the business. So I have a fairly good idea what you do, or at least I'd like to think so. But again, for our listeners and for Tom about um, conversational AI, because to me, what I really liked about your idea was the fact that you're taking the new technology and you're applying it in a very specific area rather than trying to revolutionize absolutely the entire finance industry. And and for me, I think that really is the future. You start off there and you move the thing out. So um, would you say that's a fair, uh, fair reflection?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we use the term beachhead now because investors seem to like that one and we we do have a beachhead in a specific area. The way I normally kind of explain or introduce what we're doing is with two numbers. So we talk about two and a half million and 90% and the two and a half million is unfortunately the number of people that considered suicide as a result of being in debt during the pandemic. And then the 90% is the cost saving we're delivering with our B2B software, which is using the, the conversational AI. But in terms of how they're connected, if someone is in debt, the first critical step they need to take is to complete sort of an affordability assessment. And that's a detailed picture of their income and expenditure. Now, a lot of people that are in debt need help to do that. So that the regulated form in this country is 300 fields long. And a lot of people in debt, perhaps aren't that financially um, capable to be able to fill that in, so they need some help. And the usual way that's given is with agents over the phone. But the problem with that is obviously cost of living crisis, you've got call centres really struggling with volumes and also high agent attrition. This is a tough job, it's really emotional. So they've got really high turnover in staff. So there's a problem from the business perspective and then also there's another problem from the customer's perspective. They're really embarrassed about being in debt. The last thing they actually want to do is tell an agent at a company they owe money to exactly what they're spending their money on so they avoid that conversation and that's the thing that leaves them feeling stuck and leads to those high suicide numbers i think the just before christmas the latest ones out where one in eight people are actually attempting suicide because of being in debt and feeling stuck so you've got this problem of overstretched agents in call centers chasing customers that won't answer the phone so to solve that what we do is we use the new world of conversational ai and we create a virtual agent that guides a customer through that detailed income and expenditure document the customer is really happy to self-serve and call centers are saving 90 of their agent costs so that's the second number um, i think the conversational ai is is really clever it's built with thousands of utterances of people talking about their money so it understands statements like my gas is 80, I get a 10% discount, stick 60 quid for the lecky and a tenner for water. And it can cope with all of those things in a sentence and get them all in the right place. Um, my favourite, the best one we had recently was, uh, somebody said, I spend a pony on fags. And I was already with my explanation as to why our avatar wouldn't understand that because it wouldn't have the training data. And before I could open my mouth, Budgie, who is our avatar said, no problems, I've put 25 pounds against you smoking products. So she's way cleverer than I give her credit for. And How do you train the
0: AI on that? Do you make it watch uh, Cockney gangster films to understand about uh, where the
2: slang <laughs> on is? Well, I mean, that, that is how people in debt talk. So lecky, um, booze, um, all of these kind of slang, that's, that's how they talk. And because we've worked on real training data, so it's real life utterances, it means it works in reality rather than, you know, the old chatbot world of, you know, intelligent people in financial services organisations trying to guess what a customer would say and creating a sort of decision tree process for it, which just falls over immediately. This is just built up on what they actually do and therefore it works when they use it.
0: Great. So again, so many questions, um, but perhaps something that's uh, a very dear to your heart, uh, mine and Tom, fundraising. How have you found actually going out and and fundraising? And I know Tom has some very strong views on this as well. So I might hand over. I
1: don't know if you're handing over the question or handing over the baton, but uh, fundraising is a a whole lot of fun. Um, And I like the way you did your numbers earlier in a catchy way. 26 is the number that I came across a lot of the time, which is the age of the people that I was pitching, which made my head explode on so many levels um i'd like to hear a little bit about you know what's your best and worst story fundraising uh if you if you, if you share to uh share to uh, elaborate and uh and how that's gone
2: yeah it's been interesting yes i share there are a number of young people you're pitching to that are following a process of like a tick box methodology of you need this 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 and this and and i get that because that's a way to filter but it does mean that they miss out on some of the the other things I think, um, I think from funding for us has been challenging on a number of levels so we're in the debt space, the debt space is crowded um, and there's potentially a lack of understanding of that so from, from a crowded perspective we are a provider to the people managing the debt so we're an underlying service on that income and expenditure form so our first customers are actually debt platforms, debt collectors, those kind of places, you know, those b2b2b sales, which are great for us, we can stay small and still get to a lot of clients. So, so communicating that has been a bit of a challenge. Um, And then also, I think, you know, we've done, we started sort of funding from um, angels, really, because in the early stages, and actually, weirdly, a lot of angels have never been in debt so they don't necessarily understand that market and that's been quite challenging and they kind of felt you can't or shouldn't monetize what we're doing in debt and actually so to explain in that has been has been uh, tricky um i think somebody also said to me um it's the worst market for 20 years because we were fundraising last year we're raising again this year so so just some of it was the market situation um And I suppose the other challenge for us was um, it turns out I'm female and we're not great at this, apparently. So I've seen some horrendous stats. Um, I think in terms of the best experiences, it's where people have got what we're doing. So it just grabs them in the gut and they're like, yeah, I understand the problem. I get your solution. I see how it's going to work. And also they see the benefits because we talked about beachhead earlier, which is debt. But ultimately what we've built is an affordability assessment and we've already started conversations with providers in the wealth management space uh, new new lending onboarding um property tenant onboarding all of those kind of things but that then created another challenge for funding because it was like well are you focused enough which is why we now use the term beachhead for debt and show the other opportunities later on um my worst story involves somebody Saying something to me about you're an attractive, intelligent lady. You figure out how you get the funding, um, which I'm not sure was the highlight of my experience.
1: That's pretty good. I was going to ask you what the cringiest uh, female founder term is. Uh, my wife went through her journey and uh, found that they were called entrepreneurs uh, to which she obviously declined <laughs> that title, thinking uh, she didn't need any further inhibitance to uh, to go forward. Have you got um? I mean, that's, that is quite, that's quite a shocking uh, statement, but uh, um, have you found, do you think the journey, I guess a different way to ask is, do you have advice for um, for women in business looking to found their own business um, and either how to position themselves or some of the challenges that they've, uh, that you've encountered? Uh, um,
2: I suppose if I share kind of my experience with it and then sort of reflect on maybe where that might happen, And I, you know, I should start off by saying I'm not a bra burner. I mean, for starters, these days, they're way too expensive to be doing that sort of activity with them, but, but the stats do show really poor results. I think there was one I saw that said um, when female founders get less than 1% of funds, so you can't argue with the stats, I guess. I think my personal experience is I built a really successful financial services career for 30 years on a strategy of under-promise and over-deliver, and that worked for me. And then I ended up in front of VCs that wanted me to tell them that I could deliver them a unicorn on a glittery plate. Um, and that was quite a transition for me in approach. And I, I don't think I was fully prepared for that because I think one of the things that helped me is I've, I've just done a master's and my thesis was on imposter syndrome. And I think that helped me get my head around it a little bit more in terms of that, you know, What am I promising? Can I always know exactly what I'm gonna be able to deliver? And that's hard, you know, if you're looking at a pre-revenue company with a SaaS based model, where our contracts vary from a thousand pounds MRR to a hundred thousand pounds MRR, and we haven't quite started yet. You know, I was building sort of 20 or 30 different models to show the, the variables and, you know, the worst case and the best case and everything in between. I think that was quite challenging for me, but I think it's just that having confidence, finding a sensible story that's exciting that you can get behind and then sort of sharing that with conviction.
0: So can I jump back in on the point there? you were saying only 1% of the money goes to um, female founders. Do you think because there's some kind of inbuilt bias in the industry or there's fewer women taking the thing up? I know when we sort of discussed this in the, the pre-chat, I know it sounds really stupid, but I never really thought about it that way around because um, I've had a lot of women bosses in my career and it just hadn't really occurred to me that it might be more of a barrier. For me, it's always the person and what are they trying to do? Since we chatted, I've read Anne Bowden's book and she mentions the same thing. So Anne Bowden, for anybody listening, is is the lady that started Starling Bank. So, um, yeah, what do you think it is that people just... Don't really warm to
2: female founders, or um, there's some kind of inbuilt bias? There's loads of different stats on those, and but I think it's probably a combination of lots of things. There's probably less female founders starting businesses in the first place, so therefore it's a smaller cohort. Um, I wonder if women are slightly risk averse, maybe, and you can't, you can't make black and white statements about stuff, but typically might women be more risk averse um, and therefore less likely to you know, be an entrepreneur on that. Um, there is loads of research around um, female founders get asked questions in a different way when they're fundraising. So um, the, the questions are, are worded differently and almost worded to fail rather than succeed. And that there's evidence there's research that shows that to be the case. It's difficult for me to say have I experienced that because you've never you've never got your um, comparable have you I don't stand alongside a male founder and go well, they asked me these and they asked him those. So it's difficult for me to say. And, and then yeah, I think there is there is some of that imposter syndrome thing in there potentially which isn't just a you know my thesis said it wasn't just a a female condition you know guys are from it too but i think um, women are maybe less good at coping with it potentially um and and do want to go you know like i say the biggest challenge for me was that financial modeling you know me doing a spreadsheet where i was like oh yeah this is going to happen in three years and then that and you know all this the art of the possible that's hard because I have spent 30 years in financial services being risk averse and knowing I've got to say exactly what's going to happen and then it happened. And as a founder of a startup, you, you don't know that. You have to project. So that was difficult.
0: I couldn't agree more. Having helped some firms put those financial models together, it's just so hard to predict these things. And, and like, you, it's like you want some level of certainty, but you can, you, you don't know until you kind of start the business and how things go, just how quickly things might grow and what you might be able to charge for it. But it just feels so strange. Can I also just ask, what would you change about that fundraising process? Obviously, it is difficult, and I know, Tom, you've been through it uh, as well. But what would you think would make an enormous difference if there was more stuff perhaps done online or more sources or um, just a change in the nature of venture capitalists?
2: Yeah, so I don't know if I don't know if my answer is specific to females, actually, I, I, I would just say in terms of, I think early on for me, I thought the, the fundraising progr- process was sort of broken because it was so very tricky. But actually, I think now that's probably part of the weeding out process and it has to be hard and it should be hard because you know, you've got to be really resourceful and resilient to make a business work. And if funding comes too easily, that would be an issue. So I kind of changed my view on that a little bit. But there are a lot of good businesses that are really distracted by fundraising when they could be scaling. So I do think some things need to change. I think for me, the things that have been effective and that we could do more of is sort of, I think it's honesty. So where we've had good experiences, if investors have said no, they've not fobbed us off with the Oh, it's a great idea. And we're in at the next round kind of thing, you know, if founders had a pound for every time somebody said that they wouldn't need to fundraise anymore. Um, so I think it's that being really honest, because actually, if there is a fundamental problem with that business model, that founder needs to know. So if you can see a problem, you know, you should have the, the balls to tell them, I guess. Um, but then I think the other thing that's worked really well for us is, and if not you who So if you don't see a fundamental problem with that business model, but it isn't for you, recommend them on, you will know people in your ecosystem that it could be relevant to. So that's where it's worked well for us, that honesty and the onward recommendations.
0: I I couldn't agree more. We had somebody else on who's uh, been a successful CEO and now an angel investor of some size in their own right. And they made the point that successful businesses will always find a way to get the money the idea won't die they'll keep the company alive and actually they do it and he made the point that particularly in sas which was his area of expertise but he said that the thing is once they started going they almost needed no money anyway it was almost like a reserve because once the sort of flywheel started the whole business uh, took off and very similar to what you were saying there that about the beachhead he said yeah they often start in one area but you get this massive growth into a whole bunch of other markets that you didn't think so at the time but they become just sort of natural progressions um where would you see so this is obviously a very broad-ended uh, conversation but you saw the opportunity to use conversational AI far earlier than other people in the market and obviously it's now become very topical over the last sort of like six eight months as we're recording But what was it like for you when you first saw it and why you thought, oh, yeah, this is absolutely it. And just taking your knowledge and ability to look forward, where would you see the wider market in a a few months time? Because for me, and I know I'm biased, but I can just see so many applications with your product going forward.
2: Yeah, I think we really struggled at the start to articulate it. And it was the same reaction I had when I first saw it. I was like, oh, yeah, that must have just been programmed to understand that sentence. And then you, you get it and you just talk to it normally. And it's like, oh, my goodness, you can you say, oh, what do I put for water? And it says, oh, what is this? And you go, oh, OK, that's a tennis." So it is an actual conversation. And it is so far from the chat box that we've all been frustrated by that it took a real sort of, you um, reframing of the technology in in my own head to kind of get what is actually possible, and I think chat GPT has helped massively so actually now when we're pitching we can start with. This is chat GPT for debt and actually everybody goes oh okay chat GPT is really cool and debt's a big problem, this is a good idea and it's really helped sort of um, get those early conversations and I think. The, the world of AI is, is really interesting. And I do think it is going to be the next major shift in a lot of industries, you know, including financial services. Um, I was I was at a Q&A panel uh, a couple of weeks ago at an event that was talking about um, AI and financial services. And the actual the debate got quite heated. Um, somebody made the point that they felt there's a huge risk of a catastrophic event with artificial intelligence, because whilst one bad actor that's a human being can do some damage, a bad actor that's AI can do, you know, damage on a major kind of scale. And they posed that, actually, they thought we should pause and sure, we know what we're doing before we do much more. And it was kind of like general consensus was that genie is well and truly out of the bottle. So I think for us, if we were sensible as an industry, we would start with the low hanging fruit. I think there's so, um, so many opportunities for low risk solutions and applications of AI where the implications of error are very small, but the gains are huge. So for me, things like, you know, AI, and, and actually, yeah, machine learning, we're still doing that. And there's a bit of confusion between AI and, and NML, it gets crossed over. But there's still so many opportunities that will enable us to deal with volume and give us greater insight. That means we can understand more. And, you know, you should never implement any system without supervision. And this is no different, you know, the way we're going to use this. So. For me, I think if we can use AI to do the legwork and enable humans to make better, more informed, more efficient decisions, that leaves the humans free to add more value. And that's a really great place to start.
1: Can I just uh, tag into that, Rachel? Um, Again, quite a lot of threads to pull on, but the one that you finished with is uh, probably the most topical in that there's been a few open letters floating around about the pausing of AI and the development of it. As a first point, we use it in our business day-to-day, and I'm amazed that everyone doesn't use it more. Um, we boat race things, you know, computer versus AI. We use it for chatbots inside our games. We use it in deployed in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, but the one thing that's interesting to me at the moment is, uh, as you say, it needs some regulation. Do you have any view on how that might work? Because it's quite a nuanced and complicated uh, uh, conversation and uh, not one that I've seen a great deal of debate on apart from people who clearly look pretty knowledgeable saying hey maybe we should hold this for now
2: yeah and i think it you know the regulators trying to do stuff i was at the british standards association the other day and they're trying to do an iso around it so i think everybody's having a go that won't be the answer in the short term i don't think because that's always catching up when sort of things have gone wrong i think it's about and hey, I suppose, you know, this would be lovely on everything. It's about people using it sensibly. Um, And there's always going to be those people that potentially go down a wrong route because they can see great financial gain of it. But I think it's for all of us in the industry to look at what's happening, look at where we're using it and, and kind of walk before we can run because it is very new technology and we do need to be really careful and look at the use cases and the applications of it. But I do think that the the benefits are gonna outweigh the risks if we are sensible with where we apply it and we have to learn it carefully first. So let's do the simple things first rather than trying to solve world peace with it from day one.
0: On the point of machine learning AI, I absolutely understand what you mean. The other side of our business uses machine learning and they sort of, people ask some questions, oh, it's a neural network and it's a support vector machine. We've got these various models. And you see the eyes glaze over and you just say, oh, it's AI. And it's just a little oh, right, OK, I understand now. And it's like, oh, I'm not quite sure you followed us. I'm not quite sure I followed myself. Can I ask a question as well, just about traditional finance? Now, obviously, you're offering this service to established firms. And it's, it, to me, it obviously solves an amazing problem. You know, It's an obvious uh, solving in terms of costs and, and the other issues they have. But how easy do you think it is for large established financial firms to take some of this technology on board because given my pre and i know um you might have uh, you might have to be diplomatic here but i've worked for a series of institutions and some i know at the moment would be able to do it and some of the others i i was amazed that they'd even managed to get computers on board because they seem to have just replicated the old paper-based systems that they had previously just as inefficiently but they now did it with a more expensive commuter model so given that you have this sort of uh, involvement, how would you see things?
2: Yeah, I think it, it's it's really interesting because obviously I sit on the other side of the fence. I used to be in the big banks buying this sort of stuff. And and I think there's something we need to do around solving this in the innovation challenge that is going to take both the big organisations and, and the fintechs because, you know i go in and i demo and you watch somebody get super excited i mean our demo is really cool um and and people get really excited about it in terms of the agility the flexibility the amount of money it can save them the better customer service they can deliver the fact that they that you know one organization was 500 short on its headcount of res- recruiting in their call center this would solve it overnight to deploy it so you could see them get super excited and then what you what you watch is them think for a second and sort of almost turn and look at their legacy tech stack and their data quality issues and you see their shoulders drop a little bit and then you see them turn the other way and look at their risk and compliance department and how difficult it is to work with smaller companies and you see them look thoroughly depressed. So that's, that's the real challenge and actually I was talking to a group of founders recently and, and we decided that the most common phrase we hear as small fintechs is no one ever got sacked for buying IBM. Um, and, and and my response to that is, and no one ever got a first mover advantage from buying it either. So somebody out there has to be sort of the risk takers. But it's how do we find a solution for big organisations to deploy tech safely? And it's that sort of buy not build strategy. So we've been talking to all of the major banks, and they all want to do stuff like this. Um, because there's no point in them building it themselves that the way RIA our AI gets better and better is the more utterances that go through it. So if we're working for all the banks with all the utterances, all the banks will have a better answer. So it's, you don't want to build it in silos, you want to build it across everybody. Um, but I think that the fintechs have got a role to play as well. So we have to give confidence and reduce risk. So we have to find those ecosystems to make sure we've got policies, procedures, practices, you know, all of that stuff in place to reduce the risk of organisations. and. And then the other thing we've done is partnership. so we're partnering with some of the bigger providers as sort of um a way into the big banks that's a little bit safer for them they've got a bit of sort of protection but it is a big big problem to solve if we're going to move quickly on it
1: there's an interesting debate in our team about ai and the value just to describe ai as if it was something that uh we could walk down the road with ai is both an engine and then a series of data lakes that you attach it to So some people believe that there's lots of money to be made making the uh, engine better. Um, But another approach is the data lakes. But then there's the implementation, you know, the user experience and the implementation. I guess um, uh, a question for you, Rachel, is where do you see the value in terms of uh, the AI that you're putting forward?
2: I think it's all three in terms of where we're at. So actually, the the user experience is the bit that's enabling those people that feel suicidal to actually find a different way to give them confidence to engage with this topic. Um, The engine obviously has to make it work. and, And it's I think what we found actually is we're building out a broader ecosystem to solve more of the client, if I say client as the business that we're working with rather than the end consumer. So we're also pulling in sort of open banking data to verify or pre populate information credit reference agency stuff as well. You know, we can do things like pull a benefits calculator in to help the customer find additional income as well. Even things like we can check GP records. So if this is for a water company that's got a social tariff, and they need to know somebody's on dialysis to get cheap tariffs. So, so it's that ecosystem of the engine and what you're pulling into it, and then using that sensibly. So you need the AI to then work out the complex situation of what happens to people in these scenarios, so the engine has to work from that perspective as well, and then I think I mentioned the data in terms of. The more utterances that are in there, the more people it will work for because it's already learned that and it's done that and it's made that um, an effective answer.
1: So Rachel. I had a question just quickly um, do you think then looking at what the the application you're building in AI it's more similar to the time that in financial services they started offshoring uh, service and support um, to to the back offices in India um, in terms of this is a different way of doing that or is this a completely different jump for them to get their head around
2: and I think they will probably see it like that because they're approaching it from a cost perspective and you know financial services organisations have always been led by you know the the CFO has always been a big role in that sort of business so there is a cost perspective interestingly that's not where we're having most of the conversations we're having it with the operational teams because they've got a real burning platform which is consumer duties coming out and it tells me I must answer the phone and I've got customers on hold for 40 minutes because I can't deal with the volume so it is coming from a number of those elements but yeah I think there'll be that perspective of this is a cost saving or enabling us to to deal with volume. But ultimately, um, we just found out on Friday, we're now part of the FCA innovation pathway. And that's because the FCA are really excited about how we can ensure financial services organisations have got better quality, more robust, more sort of um, auditable records of income and expenditure conversations to protect consumers. Because we know, you know, we've heard calls where customer will ring in, they're under pressure, they're trying to do this quickly, the agent wants them off the phone. It'd be like, well, what do you spend on that? Customer says, I don't know. Agent will say, well, let's just stick 20 quid later. So I think that's where there's lots of benefits in it as well.
0: So shifting gears, Rachel, now you've had some um, you know, battle experience, for want of a better word, going back and speaking to yourself, what advice would you give about how to approach fundraising and starting the business?
2: I think it's about clarity. Um, so clear value proposition. I would have used the word beachhead um, a year ago. Um, and I'm just being more confident actually in that you don't have to know everything and nobody knows everything. And it's okay to do a projection of something. As long as you can stack up the rationale and you've got various scenarios of it that, that kind of it's okay. I think I used to worry that I didn't know all of the answers and who does. Um, so that's probably what I'd say to myself, worry less, sleep more.
1: <laughs> I always love asking uh, all of our guests if they've got anything they would like to plug, whether it be your business, a book you're selling or a, uh, a talk you're about to give that you'd like uh, the CFA members to uh, jump on board.
2: I'd love to plug the fact that we are just opening another round. So um, we are fundraising again. Um, So, yeah, if anybody's interested in that, happy to talk to people and also the product itself, because, you know, we're out there, we're getting loads of traction, um, but we know there's more problems to solve. So if anybody having heard what we do thinks there's a really good use case for it, I'd love to have a chat. And what's the best way to get in contact with you? I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and then also my email address is rachel.curtis at Inicio.ai. And I ought to just explain. Rachel is just an EL and Inicio is I-N-I-C-I-O.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's all from me. Thank you so much for your time, Rachel. It's lovely to see another technologist solving big, important problems with, uh, with a focus on the customer. It's amazing how often people over-intellectualize the problem and underserve the customer.
0: Thanks, Bo. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Rachel. All the best.